2: Welcome to the Fix Your Sciatica podcast, where we meet with experts and clients and discuss how to manage your sciatica and low back pain without the use of medications or surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Ashley Mack, and I'm a physical therapist, as well as the founder of FixYourSciatica.com, a go-to resource for pain management. Throughout my years as a physical therapist and working with people who have sciatica and low back pain, a lot of people have come to me saying that they've tried these McKenzie exercises. And I spend a fair amount of the time that I with my clients re-educating them on what McKenzie exercises are. And really the truth is that McKenzie uh, is, a, is a person, but his method of assessing and treating a patient uh, actually helped guide some of these exercises. And so rather than me just talking about my experiences with the McKenzie method, I actually have Dr. David Atwood, a physical therapist, doctor of physical therapy, um, certified strength conditioning specialist, and a certified MDT. So he has gone through the entire certification process and going to be able to reveal a ton of information about the McKenzie method, its use, why it's helpful, and uh, and how it can actually help uh, perhaps listeners such as yourself. So David, thank you so much for being on today's episode.
1: Yeah, I'm stoked to be here. Should be a lot of fun to be able to chat about this stuff. I
2: love nerding out about this because I think a lot of people have a, have misconceptions about the the method itself. And so before we actually take a deep dive into talking about the method and how it's approaching pain, let's talk a little bit more about you. Tell us a little bit more about your journey yourself and where you're at today.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um... I mean, I think with a lot of physical therapists, it started with some injuries back in, you know, grade school and growing up and having PT experience and then playing sports through high school and college, you know, several injuries that kind of led me down that physical therapy road. And so, you know, I always knew I wanted to do something musculoskeletally. And then one thing led to another and just eventually decided that PT, physical therapy seemed like the right world to approach. And then, so I ended up down at um, LSU for grad school, graduated from PT school down there. And I was pretty fortunate. One of my main orthopedic instructors down there was MDT certified. Um, And so he taught everything, but you could always tell that like a good portion of his influence came from that. And, you know, getting a chance to sit down with him, chat about him, even on the side a little bit and just say like, you know, what was your biggest influence, right? Where did it come from for you? And what do you feel like has had the biggest impact on your ability to be an effective clinician? And he always pointed to MDT. And so it was something that I always knew that especially once I graduated school, had a little bit more freedom to seek out the education that I wanted to, especially more orthopedic based stuff. Um, Yeah, I jumped right into it, started taking classes, made it through the four courses and um, yeah, knew that it was something that I was really passionate about, took seriously and ended up becoming credentialed. Yes, it was 2019. So yeah, about four years ago now.
2: That's an awesome journey. Uh, congratulations on the certification. Definitely, yeah. uh, it takes a lot of work. Um, listeners out there, um, the minimal standard for physical therapists is that you have to take your state board exam. Uh, sorry, your national. It's a national board exam, and the national board exam itself is saying. It pretty much in essence, it's like the bare minimum for you to be able to be considered a physical therapist. And so I consider the bare minimum, the idea that you're not going to hurt someone and that you're not going to kill someone like that. Those are, those are the two biggest things. Like that's the standard when you graduate, but it is up to your clinician or is up to physical therapists to be able to develop their skills and knowledge so that they can help more people more effectively. And that's where you have uh, continue continuing education, very state-by-state in regards to how much and what courses are approved, but what clinicians such as David and myself and and other physical therapists will take time out of our our weekends to actually go to these courses and learn a little bit more about uh, more effective ways to tell people. And so with David, I think you said it was four specific courses that you had to take. And then it was an exam to be able to see, are you truly, certain? like, are you truly someone who's qualified to carry that? And that, certification itself, um, it's pretty grueling. You have to go through the courses and you have to take the exam. Whereas in some cases you can just take a course and be certified in it. And so that's one of the, another really great thing I love about the MDT certification is that there is a specific standard. Um, and that's important, uh, ac- across the board, um, especially when you're working with a professional that they are being held to a specific standard. So let's talk about McKenzie itself, yeah. MDT, you know, we shot up those three letters. So Let's talk about like, what what does MDT stand for?
1: Yeah, so basically it's Mechanical Diagnosis and Therapy. Um, So I guess like the kind of like blanket statement would be some mechanical diagnosis and assessment system that we basically utilize the information gained from those um, to create classifications and subgroups to place patients in. And what that allows you to do is basically create a bit of an algorithm that allows us to be able to place patients in those subgroups and to be able to treat them more effectively. Um, I'd be remiss to not actually give the short origin story of the MDT itself. Um, Of course, Robin McKenzie was a um, physical therapist in New Zealand, you know, practiced in the 70s, 80s, and, and well beyond that. But the original story is There's a guy coming in, and this is back in the era where PTs were basically just using ultrasound, TENS, heat, nice, just modalities to alleviate pain short term. So this man comes in, he's got back pain, pain radiating down the leg. And so uh, Robin basically says, or Robin McKenzie says, hey, uh, go lay down in the patient room. There's a table there waiting for you. I'll be with you in a couple minutes. So the man with the sciatic pain goes in. And lays down on the table. Mackenzie uh, McKenzie comes in a few minutes later. Turns out <laughs> the guy wasn't the sharpest tool in the box, I guess they say, and was laying face down on a table that was bent up. So he was laying in a fully extended position face down. And, you know, McKenzie asked him to stand up and he's like, How are you feeling? And all of a sudden the guy's like, like, I'm feeling much better. Like the pain's not in my leg anymore. And it feels like it's up in my back. And then And then he jokes that the next thing he says is great. All right, go home and come back and we'll do it again tomorrow. (laughs) Right. And so this kicked off the entire investigation of this type of system and this type of treatment. Um, And yeah, over the years, it's of course been changed a million times and evaluated in a bunch of different ways. And so it has led to what is currently the MDT system, which is constantly integrating new information and changing, but feel like that origin story is a pretty interesting one to see how just one little funny circumstance can lead to now it is an entire international institution that paves the way and leads the way for a lot of this research.
2: It's a really cool story because I mean it it, at the time it really it went against everything that was uh, being implemented for sciatica and low back pain and uh, listeners out there when uh, Robin McKenzie was just you, and when he accidentally had his patient lay face down on an incline table. At the time, the primary mode of treatment, as David was saying, was ultrasounds, tens, heat, and ice. But um, this concept of they're called Williams flexion exercises, which Williams was a, uh, an orthopedic surgeon, and the majority of the exercises were were flexion based or forward bending faced. So you're looking at pelvic tilts pulling your knees up to your chest, sitting in a chair and rounding forward, a lot of rounding, rounding, rounding. And here you have Robin McKenzie accidentally going the opposite direction and having a huge positive effect, uh, which is really cool. And so I think it's because of that story, many clinicians and patients and just the general public look at the McKenzie method as just back extensions, and they go into it saying, "Well, I've tried the McKenzie press ups, and it's not helping." And so, can you tell us a little bit more about what the what the evaluative process is is like um, beyond the whole? Okay, I accidentally had this person lay face on an inclined table, so everyone's going to do back extensions. And so, what is that thought process? You brought up this concept of algorithmic-like thinking, which I appreciate because when it comes to treating pain or even in healthcare and when you're treating them, we're we're approaching it as a scientist and we have to be able to get the necessary information to be able to make a decision on what exercises or stretches are to be provided for our patient. And unfortunately, I think there was a point in time in the physical therapy realm where we kind of lost that. And here you have Robin McKenzie being able to say, okay, let's get back into this type of thinking. Um, so yeah, if, if you wouldn't mind, sh- share with us a little bit more about what that thinking is like and how people can come up with some sort of solution uh, in regards to pain
1: management. 100%, you know, I think what's interesting is a lot of the numbers that um, the Institute releases, and of course these change a little bit as they continue to study this. I think roughly 60%, of patients are extension responders right so that is the majority and of course that i think is why there tends to be this idea of like well if i did 10 extensions if i did 10 press-ups and it didn't work for me like well it probably means the system itself isn't good well there's a lot of reasons why it might not work maybe you're in that 40 percent bucket where there's some sort of lateral component, or maybe you are a flexion-based responder, right? So those are the kind of things that you have to search through. But fortunately, because the evaluation system itself is so algorithmic, you work through those things. And I think one of the things that we end up, and especially myself as a young clinician, and honestly, even early on after doing my training, is 10 repetitions of something, 20 repetitions of something is not always enough to give you the information that you need. Cause if we look at how much our day-to-day life places stresses on those structures in our spine, wherever the pain is coming from, right? I think we could argue and debate all day about where exactly those pain generators are. Cause frankly, nobody really knows specifically. However, what we do know is that sometimes it takes more than 10 repetitions to make an actual change. Um, and I think, you know, we can go into a little bit deeper in that of, you know, we're looking for not only symptomatic changes, but we could look for a little bit of mechanical changes that are clues, right? So it's not always going to be I did 10 press ups, my pain centralized. And now I feel better. It could be that, well, I did 3040 or 50. And it got a little bit better. Or maybe I need to add a shift component, or maybe you know, so there's a lot of ways. And that's the fortunate part about the way that it's set up is that you know you're going to explore all those things, so you're not going to miss anything. And I think that's one of the reasons why it has made me so much more confident as a clinician, is I don't feel like I'm going to miss things, and that just kind of makes me feel like I'm, yeah, catching it all, right?
2: We are going to take a quick break to tell you about our awesome new program called the Sciatica Protocol. If you don't have the time to see a professional, but are tired of trying to figure out this recovery on your own, then the sciatica protocol is for you. Harness the power of a knowledgeable physical therapist through your phone. It takes no more than seven minutes per day, and it is designed to help you recover as quickly as possible. It is simple to start, and all you need to do is log into ifixyoursciatica.com. Forward slash the dash sciatica dash protocol and fill out the nine question quiz to begin. The link for the program is in today's show notes. Yeah, I think it's um, what you're what you're sharing with the audience is that, like, from my understanding, and, and I share a very similar view as yours, is that um, this recovery is not just a one sided thing. Like, it's not like you go and you have to like do every. I'm going to say something and I'm going to elaborate, but it's like, it's not like you have to go and do everything that the physical therapist does and not tell them how you're, how you're feeling. Um, it's being able to have this back and forth in regards to, okay, you as a patient, you're doing a specific exercise or stretch, whether it be a back extension, but then you also have, it's it's important for you as the patient to be able to relay to your, to your, doctor, physical therapist, chiropractor, whoever you're working with saying, this is making me feel better. And there's a lot of, the, the term better, um, it's a very broad definition, right? Because you have your pain intensity of your pain uh, side, the area of location, uh, the location itself, right? We were talking about, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about centralization, but even, even just the type of pain. And then um, uh, you brought up the, the mechanical aspect. So it's like you do 10 press-ups and it's like, okay, maybe your current active pain hasn't improved, but maybe you can touch your toes now with with uh with less fear, right? You're having you're having that opportunity to create a change, but us clinicians, we don't know if the change is happening unless you tell us or unless we actually reassess, which I think that's one of the most important parts of Mackenzie and of what I think truly when it comes to pain management, we need to be able to reassess the effectiveness. whatever we're providing because if not we're just shooting first and then aiming later which is not the the most ideal i mean it'll work it'll hit something but um it's not the most efficient and so this algorithmic type of thinking and for listeners if you're not really quite sure what algorithmic type thinking is and i'll share my definition and then david can share his but my idea is that you have this information you have this process to be able to say okay based on this information i think that this is the this is the culprit, or I think this is the solution. You put in the solution, you see if it responds better or worse, and if it responds better, awesome, you run with it. If it's worse, okay, let's make those changes. What else do we need to add, or what do we need to subtract in order for us to get the most efficient uh, type of type of uh, treatment? Um, David, what are your thoughts on uh, algorithmic thinking?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And I think to kind of like circle back on that, like it is so collaborative. I think that's one of the things that's so awesome about it is it's not just a set of passive treatments um, where it's like you come in, you get this and this, are you better? Great. All right. See you in a week. Right. It's so collaborative. And I think one of the things that like, and so to speak to the algorithmic part, it's like, if you can just picture what a giant flow sheet might look like and like, okay, if this happens, go here, if this happens, goes here. Right. So like, that's what I like about it because there's a logical scientific kind of like progression to work through those. But there is an art to it, right? Because not everything, we all know this, right? Whatever field you're in, not everything is going to show up the way that it does in a textbook. And that's where the art of applying this to the scientific method is so important. However, what it does is once you have experience with this and you kind of know what's going on, you know how you can flow through this. And I think that's one of my favorite things about this. Like, once you work with a MDT clinician for a little bit, ideally, you should be able to work through this algorithm on your own after a few visits, right? It's a lot at first, absolutely. But you know, what I actually do frequently is I'll send home with my patients if maybe they're gonna be traveling for a little bit or I won't see them for a week or so. I'll write out a flow sheet where I'm like, okay. And you know, we we talk about, it. I know we'll chat about it later. Uh, if your symptoms do this, if your mechanics do this, I want you to keep going along this route. If they don't, then we're going to pop down to here and we're going to try this. And then we're going to pop down here and try this. Right. So um, yeah, it just, it feels like it's a really good (laughs) flow sheet that you can kind of follow. And that's sort of what we mean by algorithmic there.
2: And so let's take a deep dive into like the inner workings of, of how this is all of how it works. Right. So, um, let's talk about, yeah. Um, in regards to, sorry, this is probably like a very broad statement, but let's keep it specifically to sciatica pain or like low back pain itself. And so, um, one of the big things was doing motions over and over again, as you said, it, it could take more than 10 repetitions. So it's classified under this category called repeated motions. And so, From your understanding of your training, can you tell us a little bit more about why something like repeated motions or like doing something over and over again could be helpful?
1: Yeah. um, Basically, so, all right, here's a quick, another little plug of a study they did. They looked at how an average person moves um, throughout their day. And they found, and I'm going to mess up the numbers a little bit, best of my memory, a person flexes or bends their spine forward 5,000 roughly times in a day, right? Right we extend our spine less than 50 times in a day. So what we know is that realistically, you know, 10 movements in one direction, it can be flexion, it can be extension, it can be rotation, it can be side gliding, whatever it is. 10 movements in one direction may be a miracle. It absolutely happens to where all of a sudden, like you see a significant symptom response based on that. But usually it's just not going to be enough loading for those structures to actually provide either a mechanical or a pain response change. If it does, awesome. Your diagnosis is gonna be really easy and you're all set. But for the vast majority of people, it's gonna take more exploring and it's gonna take a little bit more than 10 repetitions just because of how much we do to our body on a day-to-day basis and how much we ask of it. Um, We usually just need a little bit more than that to to learn what what it needs.
2: I love that. I think you look, um, what you're talking about, it seems as if we're introducing this, um, this like new concept of movement in, in a way. And I, I like to view movement Absolutely. very, very similar to like nutrition where it is important for us to get carbs, fast, and proteins. But if we eat way too many carbs, like we're going to end up retain a lot of water, our blood glucose might be a little bit higher as well. And like the same thing, like if you eat too many fats, like your cholesterol might go up, right? And Absolutely. so being able to yeah. reintroduce like that. Um, and and, and uh, listeners out there, if you like look at uh, a whole bunch of blogs, even you know the information that David's providing, in some cases you'll see this concept of implementing novel novelty, novel movement, which. Then provides an avenue for the nervous system, aka your brain, to say, "Okay, well, I haven't done this motion in forever. I think this is probably what I needed to do in the first place." Um, yeah. So go ahead.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're spot on there, and I think this actually kind of leads in if we just kind of j- yeah. jump through it a little bit for here, sure. kind of like the pathoanatomic and sort of looking at what exactly we think is going on here, because. I think is a world and the orthopedic world and the physical therapy world. We're sort of learning and understanding a lot more, um, about how much the neurological system plays a role in all of this. Right? So the McKinsey system was originally built on the idea that we have our disc, right? And then in the middle of the disc, we have that hardened nucleus pulposus. And then what we are doing with our spine, extending it, flexing it, rotating it is all placing different pressures on the internal structures of that disc, as well as some of those external structures around it, such as the nerves, ligaments, all that, right? Studies have somewhat proven and then also disproven, like the idea that like doing repeated extensions is like shifting the disc forward, right? So I think we understand that we are changing the pressures on the disc, but from an anatomical perspective, I think we've learned that we're not really changing exactly positions of what's going on there. So, you know, I think for a lot of us, it kind of leaves you scratching your head a little bit of, well, what are we doing? But fortunately, what we've learned is that if we think about it anatomically working that way, it functions well clinically. It kind of is, it's not doing what we think it is, but it's responding the way that we think it is. And so I think it's kind of left a lot of us, doesn't matter what system you're looking at, whether it's Mulligan or McKinsey or probably Stanley Paris's type of treatment. Anyway, it's, we're not really sure exactly why things are working as well as they do, but we're thinking that there's a lot more of a neurological component. And I think to your point with the novel stimulus,
0: um,
1: there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be discovered there. But I think a lot of us are heading this direction um, and just figuring out how to apply that to what we already know.
2: And not to say that the anatomical structures are completely negated either. Like there are for certain some cases where like, you know, the, the back extension will actually resolve the disc herniation itself, but also could it have been that the, I I don't know. I forgot it was a pretty large percentage. A large percentage of a herniated disc will just respond with with anything. Um yeah. and then like the more the more herniated it is, the like the higher likelihood that it'll actually get resorbed in the first place. So there's a lot of other mechanisms. And you and we're we're talking about the neurological system. And so listeners out there, the neurological sy- like when you're experiencing pain, pain is like one of the only very few things where we don't have a true objective measurement like blood glucose, for example, you, ha- you can literally say this is the uh was it grams per deciliter or something like that. You know, we have like a specific number, but when it comes to ranking pain, the best thing that we can do is say, okay, on a scale of zero to 10, according to your scale, how is this and how is this impacting you? And what's important, listeners, is that when you're working the clinician, we have like your, your clinician should be saying, how is this working for you? Like, what is it doing to you and what you're feeling at this point? And it's that information that we can truly work off of. And that's one of the big challenges is because we don't have a true objective measure. We can't just like stick a prod in you and be able to say like, is this truly working? It's what's going on, not only at the area of of said injury, but also how your brain is processing this as well, which is even more important for you to be able to share this information with your clinician. And that's a large part, we can't do our jobs If you don't tell us if it's working or not so that's that's just a quick plug right there but yeah you you bring up some really 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 valid points david
1: yeah absolutely and yeah and i do think you know it you, you keep seeing it circle back right it's a collaborative effort right it's one of those things where we know these changes are going to occur one way or the other we input something into the system a novel stimulus Maybe it's a bunch of extensions and guess what? Things get worked. So we move on and we figure out, okay, what's the next novel stimulus that we can try? What's the next one that we can try? And eventually you find one that your body responds well to, both mechanically and hopefully symptomatically, right? Um, but yeah, that's kind of what you look for. And it's not always a perfect immediate um, symptomatic response. I think um, very frequently when working with this, the first treatment that I see somebody there may not be much of a symptomatic change. However, if you all of a sudden like, well, I can flex my spine a little more comfortably, or I find that I have a lot more rotation now, and it's not giving me quite the same level of resistance, then those are positive signs. Those are positive changes. And in fact, that is really good evidence that you have found what we call your directional preference. And a directional preference is basically where you find the position or that repeated movement for your spine that is going to improve both the mechanics of how you are moving, as well as the symptoms eventually of how you are feeling, right? So, that is considered the directional preference, but that's why we keep searching for that directional preference. And a lot of times, the first responses you get are mechanical and not symptomatic. But if you get those mechanical responses pretty quickly, it will usually, in most cases, go to where it's actually making a symptomatic change as well.
2: So we have uh, mechanical changes, improved range of motion, less fear, um, and maybe even less awkward and and less tight. Um, Let's talk about the symptomatic presentation. And so um, there's a lot of different variations in regards to like what is better, but we talked earlier, earlier about centralization. And I often discuss this with the clients that I work with, and its um, I think it's usually classified as like either centralization or the centralization phenomenon. And so can you tell us a little bit more about about centralization and and why that is so important? Because a lot of people will experience the centralization of symptoms, and they're they're freaking out because they're like, I'm in more pain, but my leg pain has gone, my my back is killing me. So yeah, can you share us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, totally. So at its core, we have two things. We have centralization and peripheralization. So let's just, for an example, consider a person who has sciatica, sciatic pain, going all the way back down their leg to the back of their foot. Centralization would be that pain moving towards the spine, centralizing, moving towards the central of the body, right? Peripheralizing would mean it's moving towards the periphery it's moving away from the spine maybe that's somebody whose pain is only in their low back and their glute and then that peripheralizes down to their knee down to their foot what have you right so basically what we can do with that information is over time we have learned that as something centralizes it's doing better as something peripheralizes it's doing worse but you know to your point It can be a little frustrating at times because when things centralize very frequently, that is accompanied by an increased pain in that central location. My best explanation for this that i like to chat with people about is, look, when you're having pain signaling that's occurring all the way down your leg, it's covering a large spectrum of area. However, when that pain is moving closer to your back, basically your body is now able to recognize that that pain, that symptom, the culprit of what is happening is in a more um, concentrated area. And therefore, that pain can feel a lot more concentrated and a lot stronger. But usually just takes a lot of education to recognize, like, I know that doesn't feel good. But this is what what we are doing is actually a very good prognosis for how things are going to play out moving forward. And it will get uncomfortable for a little bit, but it will get better because we know that we have the correct directional preference for you and the things are moving in the right direction there.
2: That's a great explanation. Um, I like to use uh, like stories or like visual representation. So i often say like with with uh, centralization, it's kind of like when you have a, a tube of toothpaste and as you are starting to get the end of your toothpaste, I'm someone who likes to roll up my toothpaste tube. So all of a sudden it like rolls up yeah. and it's like thick at the end, right? And so um, I remember I was working with one of my patients back when I was young, um, as a younger clinician, I was telling them about the, the centralization. I was like, it's kind of like toothpaste. And um, uh, we, we were doing, I think we were doing back extensions or another movement. And I was like, how are you feeling? He was like, Oh yeah. Like, I'm feeling a little bit better feel a little bit more intense in my back like toothpaste. And so it was a, it was a very cool uh visual representation. Um, I'm going to
1: have to steal that. That's brilliant.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it was it was great. I, I I love using analogies because it helps me visualize a little bit better. Um I think you brought up a really uh, throughout this entire time um you're using some term like wording that is um for lack of a better word, less negative. Because how we approach pain and how we view it and how we perceive it can actually be influenced by the words that we use. And so what was great, what I the observations that I made with you, David, was that it's like, okay, things are getting better. It's gonna be a little bit more uncomfortable. So you're kind of setting the tone of of what the expectations are. But I think a lot of clinicians and like people who come to us and you probably see it as well as that they're coming in with a huge fear of, of pain. And so they're like, oh my gosh, this is going to get worse. Everything's going to be more damaged. And you're, and these words like damaged, uh, bone on bone, like wearing down "degeneration," like all these things will actually heighten our pain because of the words and how we perceive it. And so that was a, that was an observation i made as you we were discussing this and i appreciate it
1: yeah absolutely you know i i don't know if he necessarily coined this term but i follow um dr e Erson religioso a lot and taking some of his coursework and um he's fantastic by the way for anybody um looking for uh, just some more views on some orthopedic stuff but um he uses the term nocebo a lot kind of as the antonym of placebo right where it's so true i mean the number of people that walk in and they've seen an MRI. Now, like I've got stenosis, I've got degenerative discs, I've got like herniations at six different levels and I think my spine's about to crumble. And unfortunately as healthcare providers very frequently we feed into that as opposed to push back on it. Cause it doesn't take too much digging into research to find that like you can MRI a healthy person's back that's anything above 25 years old And you're going to find a lot of damage. And so that doesn't necessarily equate to pain. So that's why we've kind of shifted away, kind of circling back to some of the more um, less pathoanatomic versions of things and a little bit more of how are different stimuli and how are different movement systems and patterns um, changing how you're feeling there. But yeah, I think that like as a profession and certainly as healthcare systems as a whole, we should do a lot better job of saying like, hey, this is what you can do. These are things that maybe you should avoid in the short term, but there's no reason why we can't work to get you back. And maybe we have to modify some things. That's fine. But realistically, like we should be promoting movement and not telling people to stay away from it
2: hundred percent reducing that fear. Um, yeah. And I think Dr. E has also coined, he brought up the term uh, like thought viruses, um, which I think is also tough. It's very Absolutely. very, yeah. very yeah. grossing. It's like, I know for myself, whenever I deal with stress and it's something that I'm working on, but um, I know for me, I have a tendency to internalize a lot of the the stresses and troubles that I have. And so when I'm in my own head and I start working it, I can literally go down a huge rabbit hole of like, Oh my gosh, the world is burning. But the moment I start even changing up how I perceive or even how I, the words that I use to describe what I'm experiencing, um, it really changes how it feels like to me. And and um, what's really interesting is that uh, us physical therapists, like especially ones who really care about patient success, not to say that other fit PTs don't, but with David's background as a, in McKenzie and in my background in regards to how I work with my clients, we, we we can kind of only do so much in regards to helping reframe that. And this is actually one of like where I think, um, the, the behavior psychotherapists do a very fantastic job of being able to help people reframe how they describe it. Like we can only, you know, we can touch it a, a fair amount, but also we're there to be able to provide the mechanical aspect, right. In the, in the hands-on stuff. Um, and it's a, it's a very cool thing. And so, um, David, we, we, we talked a fair amount about the the benefits and how, say, the the McKenzie um, method, and it's a method, it's not a McKenzie exercise, it's a McKenzie method of treatment um, and how it works. Um, if any, would you be able to share, like, what, what are some of the limitations uh, as uh, to this method um, that you see?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and to your point there, I think it is a method, right? I think it does get the... Um, common sort of thought that there's no uh, manual therapy. There's absolutely manual therapy as you progress us, right? It's not just a series of exercises, right? It's several things. Um, but to answer your question, you know, I do think there are some limitations, right? Um, and I think there's no one system that's perfect and there's, I don't think there's a one size fits all. And what's interesting, you know, I think maybe the Institute would love to hear me say this, but like some of the instructors even, you know, they're kind of even looking a little bit more at the idea of regional interdependence, right? It's not, let's say you do have a lumbar spine issue. For me, because I've had training in other systems such as SFMA, I'm also going to look at somebody's thoracic spine. I'm also gonna look at their hip mobility. And cause you wanna see how the chain link above and the chain link below are impacting that system. And sometimes what I found is just giving somebody lumbar spine, let's just say you're a directional preference extension responder, sometimes just extensions might get you part of the way there, not all the way there. But now all of a sudden when I work on that person's hip mobility or their thoracic spine mobility, then all of a sudden those press-ups are that much more effective and therefore can get the person the rest of the way home. So I think if there are some current limitations, it's that, it's that we don't as a institute do enough to look at that chain link above and that chain link below because it does tend to be a little bit focused. But I think if you have a clinician that just is aware of that, as it does seem a lot of the instructors themselves are, but I think that's something they will probably bake into the um, coursework in the future. But at this current time, it's not in there as much. So I think if there's a limitation, I'd probably start there.
2: Yeah, I think one of the cool things about um, professionals and particularly very effective professionals, whether it be an organization like McKinsey Institute or even someone like us, right? Um, the moment that we recognize our limitations is it the moment we realize that we actually start trying to figure out how can we overcome those limitations, right? And I think identifying the limitations in your knowledge or an uh, organization in their knowledge, it allows us to be, it allows us to grow. Um, it allows us to grow and the ultimate, like th- the, the person, the group of people who actually benefit from identifying these limitations and growth are, are the patients are the people who are experiencing pain. So we're, we're, uh, going through it, um, for the better. And so, um, it's really great because for us to be able to say, this is what we need to work on. It really is a catalyst because if, and and I would say, uh, listeners be wary when, when someone says I have no limitations, um, because, the, the truth is, is that, um, and I'm going to borrow a book from uh, the world of martial arts, um, every every black belt out there in martial arts, they're not saying, okay, I have like reached the pinnacle, I can go ahead and retire. You look at, okay, well, I've, I've reached this point of say, quote unquote, mastery, but the mastery itself allows you to be particularly uh, aware of what you're deficient in and allows you to become even more of a master and even more of an expert in it. And so um, that's that's one thing where if someone says it's like it's my way or the highway or there's like no other thing that works aside from my technique, be a little cautious about that because there's so many different things that are out there. But also not only so many different treatment mod- modalities, but you, you yourself, listener, are an independent person. The pain that you're experiencing is unique to yourself and your experiences and your beliefs on your recovery and how you feel. And so when it comes to working with a practitioner, whether it be someone like David with their MDT or or anyone who's actually managing, helping you overcome this pain, you have to be, and uh, it's, it's not, a, it's like kind of like the driver's seat, but like both you and your clinician, you will both have the steering wheel, you will both have access to the gas and the brake. And you guys are in control together, but it's a journey together, which then brings up my, my next question was, um, I mean, what I really love about McKenzie and the method itself is that it's it's very empowering, right? It's, it's this back and forth. The patient can really say whether or not they're feeling better worse or the same and how it actually affects them. We want to have these listeners leave with some sort of action points and so what what um there's two scenarios so scenario number one what What are some action steps that people can take to help aid in their recovery um if they're actually working with the clinician right now so that's scenario number one
1: yeah you know i think um if you have a clinician that's already been exposed to the mckenzie method and stuff and i think that's fantastic right like um continuing to progress on that pathway and utilizing some of those tools um, I think if you're working with somebody who maybe isn't as familiar, you know, that's totally fine. See where you get and progress. And if you feel like you need to move on at some point, like, you know, I think that no healthcare provider or not every healthcare provider and patient matchup is perfect. Right. So I think seek out the person that you feel like is like making the best change for you. I think the other thing that's really simple is um. Rob McKenzie wrote a book and it's continued to be um, there's a million editions now and they're updating it constantly with new information, but it's called Treat Your Own Back. Um, and it's available on online book retailers for less than $12 and it's 100 pages, maybe tons of pictures. So it's not a, neat, not a difficult read by any means, but it does a really good job explaining kind of in a nutshell and boiling down to the important points or this is the anatomy of your back. This is how mechanical stresses of your day to day life affect your back. And here is a treatment plan of how we can kind of take you through that. And this is where it actually like it sort of lays out a little bit of that algorithm that we were talking about today. Now, of course, you know, somebody who may not be as exposed to it, you might miss out on the art of some of the finer points and what exactly you're looking for. But I think it's an incredible resource to get started and to just kind of gain a much larger, broad spectrum understanding of what could be going on with your back. And just to give you a little bit of an understanding there.
2: The more knowledge you have, um, in, in many cases, the the more in tune you'll be with what you're, what you're experiencing and you can have a little bit more control. I think one of the challenging things that you encounter when trying to go through so much information is that you're going to oftentimes be presented with some conflicting things. And so when you get to that point, my recommendation to piggyback off of David's is giving you the opportunity to focus on what really works for you. Like that's really the big thing um, of what I've gathered with uh, McKenzie and a lot of these other founding fathers, uh, founding people of, of modern day pain management is being able to focus on what really provides you the most relief? And that's one of the big, and that, and that will actually like set the tone in in regards to recovery. And that book is great. I've read that book, um, and definitely recommend it to, um, a good number of the people that I work with. And so, um, which I, it probably answered the second part of that question is like, for the folks who aren't working with the clinician, uh, you know, definitely check out that book.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't recommend it enough because I think that like, And I tell this to people a lot. I'm fortunate enough that I oftentimes I'm working in a setting where I'm one-on-one with a patient, 45-minute visit. So we have a lot of time to discuss maybe some anatomy questions or some general stresses to the back questions. But frankly... Regardless of what setting, you don't necessarily have enough time to really dive into all that stuff. So yeah, knowledge is power, man. Just spending a little extra time, just reading into that, digging that, and usually in most cases, you come away feeling a lot more confident about the situation in your back, and that yeah, I should be moving, I should be trying this stuff because yeah, bed rest isn't good. <laughs> it's not going to help, right? Bed rest, bed rest is. Uh, I think like it's. Well, I think it's
2: like less than ten percent of pain sufferers would actually benefit from bed rest, or I think it's even less. I the last time I checked, um, which is which is really interesting. All right. Well, I'm David. Thank you so much. Um, I learned a, a great deal um, uh, from this episode, and I I hope the listeners can take some really good action, or at least get a better understanding of their pain or whatever they're going through because it is important. It, as you said, knowledge is power. And so, um, David, if you wouldn't mind, like there, there's probably some listeners who are like, yeah, I, I want to take David's brain a little bit more. Um, tell us a little bit more about how people can get in touch with you.
1: Yeah, 100%. So um, I'm at two locations. I do an insurance-based practice at Golden Gate Physical Therapy, and I work in uh, downtown San Francisco. Um, I also run a cash-based practice out of a private uh, gym, and that's called Kino SF. Um, but you can reach out to me. My email is djatwoodpt at gmail.com. That's djatwoodpt at gmail.com. And yeah, if you want to set up an appointment, awesome. Or if you just want to ping me a question about something that may or may not be working for you, I'm, I'm happy to help. Awesome.
2: David, thank you so much for your time. I'm so excited for the listeners to take action on this episode.
1: Yeah. It's been great to chat with you. It's been really fun.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you got some help from today's podcast and for more info, check us out at ifixyoursciatica.com. Have a fantastic and pain-free day. No patient therapist relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. We are not providing medical advice, and all information should be confirmed by a medical provider.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it